and welcome to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. You ever had those people in your life who've talked about how they can't believe in God? And you ask them why, and they go, well, God doesn't, why doesn't God just prove he exists, appear before us? Why doesn't he do that? And a lot of Christians I know get hung up on this. I got hung up on this many different times. Well, today, Pastor Cliff Connectly from New Canaan, Connecticut, where he has Grace Community Church, goes to a college campus and discusses this with students along with other questions that they bring forward. So, I hope this blesses you, and if you're brand new to this channel, please like and subscribe to this wherever you get your major podcasting from. So, I hope you enjoy. Give me an answer. God, prove yourself to me. Well, thank you for coming out here. Um, I guess my question is, God loves us all, and we're all made in His image. He loves us enough to where he sacrifices one and only son, the only day in history that the Trinity was broken because God cannot stand a sin on Jesus Christ. And my deal, the thing I struggle with the most as a Christian and trying to solve these things is why wouldn't God, who loves all of us enough to make an ultimate sacrifice, at least come down and try to prove his existence? It says it was based on faith, and I understand that, but if God is such a loving God, if God is love and He is just, why doesn't He come down and try to prove that He is existent, and some of us, because of that, are off to hell instruction? Difficult question. First point is, God expresses humility and self-restraint in respecting our free will. One more time. God expresses humility and self-restraint in respecting our free will. So God is not going to prove himself to anybody. If a young lady looks you in the face and says, I really love you, and you say, really? Prove it. Have sex with me, and if you don't have sex with me, I do not believe that you really love me. You are not an open, humble, honest person. You are a crass manipulator. If a woman says, I love you, you've got to allow her to express her love as she deems fit. It is manipulation to say, oh, I don't believe you until you prove it and have sex with me. Similarly, God doesn't come around to us and prove himself. Why? Because he gave us free will. And he respects our free will, and therefore he exercises self-restraint in not overwhelming us. God never overwhelms us, but he does love us. And love waits for a person to freely respond. So I think that's really important to remember. The self-restraint, the humility of God. Why? Because he respects our free will. Second point. God has left, according to the scriptures, according to Christ, more than enough evidence for any thinking person to believe in him. In other words, the only reason an atheist doesn't find God is for the same reason that a criminal doesn't find the police. He is running 
away. Well, Cliff, you just offended me, somebody might say. Wait a second. Wait a second. The person who says to me, Cliff, I can't believe God exists. I can't believe in Christ because of lack of evidence. I have respect for him. I say, fine. If the real reason you can't believe in God is because of lack of evidence, if the real reason you can't believe in Christ is because of lack of evidence, I got no problem with that. But remember what you're doing. Listen to yourself. What you're saying is, before I can believe something, this standard of evidence must be met. And if this standard of evidence is not met, I'm not going to believe it. I understand. No problem. But I'm going to hold you to be consistent the same way I'm going to hold myself to be consistent, the same way I hope you're going to hold me to be consistent. If I say I'm a follower of Christ and you watch me go out and womanize, I hope you're going to call me a hypocrite. All right. So someone who says to me, Cliff, I can't believe in God because of lack of evidence. I'm going to ask simply two questions. Fine. Who or what do you believe in? And how do they meet that standard of evidence? Sir, I've been speaking on university campuses now for 34 years. I have spoken to some of the most brilliant professors. And whenever I ask that question, the answers that I get are so embarrassingly weak, it is scary. So let's be real honest with each other. God has left more than enough evidence for his existence. There's more than enough historical evidence that Jesus is the truth. And if you choose an option to Christ, pray, please tell me what this preponderance of evidence is that has led you to trust in the option to Christ. And just listen to people. And it gets embarrassing really fast. Uh, thank you. Um, second question. Uh, God is all-knowing and he is all-powerful. And in the beginning, Lucifer, or Satan as we come to know him, was originally an, uh, an angel. And because of his pride, he became a fallen angel and took I forgot how much of the league with him. Uh, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful, and he knows that, that because of that instant that he became a fallen angel, all of this was going to happen, he was going to have to send his son and sacrifice in the first place, then I guess why even have an angel such as Lucifer in the first place? I do not know why God created Lucifer. I don't know why God didn't have Hitler's mother have a miscarriage before Adolf Hitler was born. I don't know why God allows things to happen. Obviously, part of the answer, though, is God has created a world where there are natural laws. And when Hitler's mom and dad come together, they're going to have Adolf. Miracles do not happen regularly all over the place. Miracles are the changing of a natural law. And 90% of the time, the natural laws that God has created are in total operation, 99% of the time. Miracles are, occasionally, God changes a natural law, intervenes. Why does God intervene in those few situations he does and perform a miracle? I do not know why he does it one time and not another. But I can promise you, my younger brother, who in 1997 had a babysitter, who ran a stop sign with his little seven-year-old daughter in the car, pickup truck at 55 miles an hour came down and smashed into that car, killing the babysitter and my niece. I can promise you, brother, with why didn't God intervene and have the babysitter stop and evade the pickup truck at 55 miles an hour? So you see, that question is always 
almost at the tip of our emotional thinking, our emotions, because it hurts so stinking much to have someone killed like that. I do not know why God intervenes at some times and not at others. It's a very hard question. So, thank you. Uh, I'm going to be honest for a second. I, I consider myself an agnostic. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the biggest reasons that I consider myself an agnostic is because I find that there is a very big confliction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not exactly in, in doctrine or in words, but in the personality of God, in a way. Uh, and, I mean, in the Old Testament, it seems that, you know, you needed to sacrifice, sacrifice this, and they needed to go and conquer and kill these people, and, you know, the Jews were the only people that God considered as his children and loved. The Gentiles, you know, they weren't loved by God unless they were accepted into the Jewish faith. Whereas with Christianity, I mean, you lose a lot of, I guess, the harshness of God that, that you would see in the Old Testament. And a lot of people say, well, that's, that's God changing the way he interacts with people. But the way that I see it is, is that the Old Testament versus the New Testament, it seems like an entirely different God. In the same way that uh, a lot of people say uh, the differences between Christianity and Mormonism, you see two different gods. I see that with, with Judaism and Christianity. The Old Testament and New Testament, they're like two completely separate entities. And God, who says, I am what I am, I can't see him changing that drastically within such a short period of time. All right, it's a difficult issue, and it's not as clear as I wish it was. But the Jews were not the only people God loved. In the Old Testament, you go right back to Genesis 1 and 2. God loves all people. God respects all people because all human beings are created in his image. Well, then what's the fixation all about on the Jews? It's simply this. God, right as soon as the fall occurred, said, I am going to provide a redeemer. And I'm going to bring this redeemer into the world through a particular line, the line of Abraham. It does not mean that Abraham is superior to Hagar or Ishmael or the Arab people. Not at all. It simply means that when God is going to provide redemption, salvation, he's going to do it by bringing Messiah into the human history, and he's going to do it through the Jewish people. So when the Old Testament says the Jews are the chosen people, it does not mean that the Jews are God's pets. Oh, no, Cliff, you're wrong. Fine then look what happens to the Jews after God uses them to judge the Canaanites. God uses first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to judge the Jews for their evil. Daniel. Remember Daniel? Okay. Daniel is in exile. Daniel has been ripped out of his home. He's been ripped out of his country. And he is in exile in Babylon. Yep. Uh, so... God uses the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all these things to do his work uh, to punish the Jewish people, but God himself still calls those people evil. You know, they're, they're the oppressing, they oppress his, his children, his chosen people. And for doing that, they in turn are punished by God as well. The Assyrians and Babylonians, they, they're tools used by God 
to, to punish the Jews, but they're still punishing his chosen people, and he recognizes that. And I, and I, and I don't know, it just seems... Okay. Do you really think over the past 3,000 years, the Jewish people have had it easy? Oh, no. Not at all. Some of the most persecuted people on the face of the planet, right? So you see, the Bible is not saying that God has pets, and those pets are Jews. Rather, it's simply saying that when God wanted to reveal himself most clearly, he became a man, and he was a Jew. That's all it means. It doesn't mean all Jews go to heaven. It doesn't mean all Jews go to hell. We're all individuals. We have to make our own decision about how to respond to God, how to respond to Christ. That's all it means. Well, and that's kind of what I mean, but I see, by, I see a stark difference in the attitude. I mean, uh, you know, you, you say, you give the example of today, the Jewish people are not uh, seemingly the most loved by God in any way. They're horribly persecuted, and that's completely true. But, and it just, in the Old Testament, it feels they were the chosen people. They were the loved ones. They were the people that were destined to bring uh, salvation to the entire world. And at this point, it just seems like not God has forsaken him, but it's like he's got a different mind. And it, it feels like there's an Old Testament God with one mind, and there's New Testament God with a different mind. Okay, we'll get to that. But remember, sir, the biggest miracle in the Old Testament is God delivers the Jews from slavery. So no, the Jews are not this pet group of people that God sort of says, here's the easy street because you're superior to everybody else. No, Jews get knocked around in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and for the past 2,000 years. They're not God's pets. Simply meant the chosen people is God chose to become a human being, to be born a Jew, to come from the line of Abraham. That's all it means. All right, second point. Where is the bloodiest book in the Bible? Is it in the Old Testament or is it in the New Testament? It's the last book of the New Testament, book of Revelation. The blood flows in the book of Revelation like in no book in the Old Testament. It talks about the final day of judgment. It talks about the judgment of God of humanity. And it's ugly. So the Bible is horribly consistent. God is good. Part of his goodness is shown in his justice. He cannot allow evil to win. He punishes evil, and ultimately he will destroy evil in hell. But God is also forgiving and merciful. And those two come together at the cross. Once again, the cross of Christ is not a pretty sight. It's agony, pain, grotesque torture. But the point of Christ is, I am absorbing the penalty for human sin. I am dying as a sacrifice. Does that make any sense? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um. So we have the bloodiest book in the Bible, not in the Old Testament, but the last book of the New Testament. Secondly, one of the most eloquent expressions of God's love is in the Old Testament. It's the book of Hosea. Please read the thing. Hosea was a prophet of God who was married to a woman named Gomer. Eventually, when he's holding his second child, Hosea begins to realize, I am not the daddy of this child. And when he holds his third child with Gomer, he realizes, I am not the father of this child. And he says, divorce, divorce. She's an adulteress. And God says, no, Hosea, I want you to be 
faithful and committed to your wife who is an adulteress. It gets so bad, sir, that Gomer's lovers bring her down to the slave market to sell her to a man who will pay the highest price. Hosea goes down to the slave market, barters against other men to buy back his wife. God is teaching Hosea a lesson. God is saying, Hosea, do you know the pain that you experience over your wife's sexual unfaithfulness? Well, that is similar to the pain that I experience because human beings who I love, who I've been faithful to and committed to, have turned their backs on me and gone their own way. It is one of the most poignant, passionate expressions of God's love anywhere in the Bible. It's the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Uh, can I say something else? Okay. Um, I, I'd like to bring up the idea of the way that God treats certain things differently from Old to New Testament. Like uh, an example, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to mess this up. Uh, in the Old Testament, there is a verse that talks about if a man uh, molests a, a young lady or rapes a young lady, that it is his duty to pay a certain amount of money to the woman's father and then to marry her. And that is God's will for that situation. And Correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we see that in the New Testament anywhere. And I, I can't imagine Christ, the, the persona of Christ that I have in my head, agreeing with that form of logic. You're thinking correctly. I agree with you. But now we've got to study context. Now, in the New Testament, some of the context is we're tipped off to by Jesus. The passage is in Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to read it to you to just let it sink in. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Okay, smooth so far. But here comes the heat. Why then, they asked, did Moses, okay, now they're going back to Leviticus, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? I mean, come on, Jesus, just listen to what you just said to us. God created marriage to be till death parts us. Bravo, Jesus, we're all on the same page. But now, why in Leviticus does Moses say, men, if you're going to divorce your wives, give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. You are right. There are some weird laws in Leviticus Numbers in Deuteronomy. But they are not the ideal. The ideal is in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, before the fall. And what you have in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is you have God tightening the noose on a group of people, in this case the Jews, who were a theocracy. All the cultures around them had slavery off the charts, divorce off the charts, sex off the charts, and God is calling them to be different but he's patient. And he's saying, okay, 
you're going to divorce your wife, make sure you give her a certificate of divorce. Why? I divorce you today. Tomorrow, can you be my wife again? Day after tomorrow, I'm going to divorce you again. And they just played them in and out. And so Moses says, no, you're not going to play with people that way. You're going to write her a certificate of divorce, send her away, and you're not going to say, oh, by the way, we really are married. See, so it's really important to read the context of these things. And that especially is true of slavery. Obviously, white Christians in the United States have used some of the statements on slavery in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as well as some of the statements by Paul to justify slavery. That is not what is being done at all. Rather, the noose is being tightened on slavery in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Does that make any sense? Uh, yes, and I actually think I have to go here for a second. So. Okay. Thank you so much. How and why do we believe in God? Is he just believe that it happens to be in some people and not in others? Or is there some sort of like reason on that leads to everyone, that leads to the conclusion that everyone, no matter where you are or who you are, should believe in God for some reason? Great question. Thank you for raising it. The first reason that you and I should believe in God and that people around the world believe in God is because nothing does not produce everything. But an atheist is someone who believes that nothingness produces everything. No, that doesn't happen. Secondly, the reason that many people around the world believe that some type of God exists, this has nothing to do with Jesus right now, this has simply to do with God's existence, right? The second piece of evidence is that if you believe there is no God, what you have to acknowledge is non-life produces life. Uh -huh. There is no example in plants, animals, human beings where non-life produces life. That's why many human beings insist there's got to be some type of living God alive who creates life. Third reason, if there is no God, you have to believe that randomness produces fine-tuning. Meaning by that, if we were a little closer to the sun, we'd all fry. If we were a little further from the sun, we'd all freeze. So there's obviously fine-tuning in this universe we live in. And if you believe there is no God, what you're saying is randomness produces fine-tuning. Uh-uh. Fourthly, Obviously, there's a lot of communication in the DNA of a cell. But if there is no God, what you have to believe is that chaos produces information. I can't swallow that. I don't think a lot of us can. Fifthly, if there is no God, what I'm saying is the unconscious produces the conscious. Uh-uh. That doesn't happen. Right here, no will, no mind, no emotions. But if there is no God, what we're saying is mind, will, and emotions came from inanimate matter. 
I don't buy that. Fifthly, if there is no God, what we're saying is reason comes from non-reason. Mm-mm. That doesn't happen. Reason comes from reason. Reason does not come from non-reason. That is why I'm convinced. Not because some book says so. I'm convinced because of my observation of life and reality that it is more reasonable to say God exists than it is to say there is no living God, things just happen. I love this letter that someone wrote to fear of what others think. This person writes, Dear fear of what others think, I am sick of you and it's time we broke up. I know we've broken up and gotten back together many times before, but seriously, fear of what others think, this is it. I'm finished with you, we're breaking up. God help me. I'm fed up of overthinking my status updates on Facebook, trying to sound more clever, funny, and important. I'm sick of feeling anxious about what I say or do in public especially around people I don't know that well, all in the hope that they'll like me, accept me, praise me. I run around all day feeling like a golden retriever with a full bladder. Like me, like me, like me. Because of you, I go through my day with a cloud of shame hanging over my head, and I never stop acting. The spotlight's always on, and I'm on center stage. And I'd better keep dancing, posturing, mugging, or else the spotlight will move and I'll dissolve into a little meaningless puddle on the ground, just like the witch in The Wizard of Oz. I can never live up to the expectations of my imaginary audience, the one that lives only in my head, but whose collective voice is louder than any other voice in the universe. And all of this is especially evil, because if I really stop and think about it and let things go quiet and listen patiently for the voice of God who made me and the Savior who died for me, in His eyes, it turns out, I'm actually profoundly precious, lovable, worthy, valuable, and even just a little ghetto fabulous. When I find my true identity in Christ, then you turn back into the whiny, yapping little dog that you are. So eat it, fear of what others think. You and I are done. And no, I'm not interested in talking it through. I'm running, jumping, laughing you out of my life once and for all. Or at least, that's what I really, really want to do. God help me. That's exactly what you're doing when you put your faith in Christ. You're saying, what God says about me is more important, more significant than what any other human being says about me. And God says to you and to me, you're created in my image for a purpose, to reflect my goodness, to reflect my compassion, to reflect my love, to reflect my goodness. Don't give it up. Don't start living motivated by fear of what others think. Don't live for the applause of people. Live for the applause of heaven. Because the truth is, 
God loves you, Christ loves you, more than any other human being ever will. That is why faith in Christ is such a wise decision, for you are turning to the all-powerful Creator of heaven and earth, who really does love you, who really does care about you. Stop living for what others think. Stop being paralyzed by fear of what others think. Experience the freedom, the incredible freedom that comes from living out the purpose for which God created you, the freedom that comes for living for the applause of heaven. God bless you as you trust Christ and as you live for Him. Hello everyone and welcome back. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Next Generation Saints featuring Give Me an Answer with Cliff Connectly and Stuart Connectly. I hope you've been blessed. I personally always enjoy it. Again, just a reminder, if you already if you haven't done it already, go ahead and like and subscribe to Next Generation Saints wherever you may listen to podcasts. So until next time, we meet again. May God richly bless you all, my dearly beloved.